1619 Project, you've heard about it. It's in public schools across the country and seems to be expanding and is treated as a reliable source of information about the history of the United States of America, particularly vis-a-vis slavery. But to what extent is it accurate? And does it provide a meaningful point of discussion for America in the year 2021? We'll talk about it with the author of the book, 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project, Peter W. Wood, on today's edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, and we're getting started right now. Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics, river all generations, oh, what a great mix, I said. Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Grateful all generations, oh what a great mix. I got Jimmy and the Crossroads making sense out of nonsense. Come on, Jimmy, what you got? Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner, and it is such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you, as always today, making sense out of nonsense. And let me tell you, folks, there is a lot of nonsense to make sense of today as we talk about the 1619 Project. Thanks so much again for being a part of the program. Great to be with you today. And let me just say as a reminder that if you like our content, please like this video and share it. It is very important that we get this discussion spread about as much as we can. Also, please be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel as well as the podcast now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. And of course, Follow our friends at the Washington Examiner at WashingtonExaminer.com. I am so pleased today to be joined by the author of a brand new book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. The author is Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars and a former professor of anthropology and college provost, author of several books in the past as well, And Peter Wood joins me now here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Sir, welcome to the program. It's so great to have you. Well, Jimmy, thank you for having me, and I I love your intro. Oh, thank you very much. I I don't, I'm a little worried about the 1619 Project's take on me doing a little bit of blues, but I'm going to dismiss that. It is interesting. They have an article on music that was just absolutely flabbergasting to me, but it's so great to have you on the program. This book, I have it right here, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, is absolutely fascinating because you're actually providing historical, factual information that seems to be dismissed by the 1619 Project. And it appears pretty clearly that's a big reason why you decided to write this book in the first place. Tell me about the genesis of your critical response, Peter. Well, I I woke up on the morning of August 18th, uh, 2019, I get the New York Times delivered to my doorstep and I opened it up and started reading this 100 page version of the New York Times Magazine uh, titled The 1619 Project. Uh, 
by the time I was finished with it, I was sure that someone had to respond to it because I'm the head of an organization that does that kind of thing. The next morning I called my staff together and we had a discussion about what could be done. One of my staff members came up with the idea of calling it a 1620 project after the landing of the uh, pilgrims in uh, Massachusetts in the year following. And uh, that became the genesis of this project. After interviewing historians and doing some writing on my own about this, I came to the idea that really what was needed was a book, something that would synthesize this uh, uh, range of responses that the 1619 project was getting. So that's where the book came from. So when it comes to the year 1619, where does that even come from? Let's just start there, because at least in, in theory, it's foundational to this project. Well, 1619 happens to be the year in which uh, the first legislative body in America was created, the House of Burgesses in the colony of Jamestown, Virginia. And if you wanted to say it was an important year, it was an important year for that reason. But also that year, a British pirate ship having raided uh, a Spanish convoy in the Caribbean, bringing slaves from Angola to Mexico, captured some slaves, sold most of them in Bermuda, but then sailed north and ended up landing near Jamestown, where the, the pirates having run out of food, traded their remaining 20 some slaves for provisions and then they left. Uh, Jamestown at the time, did not have a status for slaves. So when the captives got off the white lion, the name of the pirate ship and set foot on Virginia soil, they suddenly became indentured servants, which was not a happy thing to be, but a whole lot better than being a slave. And it meant that uh, slavery didn't really begin in Virginia in 1619. Now that's the first point of contention, the New York Times chose to call their project the 1619 Project because it asserts that at that moment in American history, uh, white supremacy and black slavery began. Well, that just isn't true. And the actual fate of those people who got off the white lion is rather interesting. They served their terms as indentured servants and then were set free as free people some of them became landowners, a few of them quite prosperous. Some of them intermarried with the white population. We know that uh, one family brought a legal case against white neighbors and one in Virginia court, which is uh, evidence that they enjoyed full legal rights in America. So what happened in 1619, very oddly, was not the beginning of white supremacy, but an early experiment in racial integration in what would one day become the United States. That's not the story the New York Times wants to tell. The lead author of this uh, 1619 project, a journalist named Nicole Hannah-Jones, wants us to believe that at that point, the great immiseration of black people in America began and that this was terrible. Well, if you were uh, a slave captured in Angola and brought across the Atlantic Ocean, you were very lucky if you were captured by the white lion and brought to Virginia. The rest of those people probably died miserable deaths. The people brought to Virginia became free people and prosperous people. Mm. So there you have it. 
Very interesting historical context. We'll get back to that in a moment. I do want to play a clip of some early interviews when they were in 2019 promoting the 1619 Project from the New York Times with Nicole Hannah-Jones, where she was on both CBS News and PBS. I want to play this clip and then get your reaction. I mean, what's amazing about that is people are not arguing the facts. So what they're basically arguing is that we should only talk about certain facts. We should talk about uh, the good part of Thomas Jefferson, but not about the fact that he was uh, an enslaver. I'm saying that history is history, and we have to tell the truth. Um, no, it's not delegitimizing, de because the whole point of the, argue, of the article is that black Americans have used those founding words to actually bring us closer to the democracy that the founders envisioned. And democracy? that is the most patriotic of things. The conceit of the magazine is that one of the things we hear all the time is, well, that was in the past. Why do you have to keep talking about the past? Well, one, I think the past is clearly instructive for, the, for how, uh, how we are right now. Mm -hmm. But also, the conceit of the magazine is that you can look at all of these modern phenomena that you think are unrelated to slavery at all, and we were going to show you how they are. And so... We have a story in there about traffic patterns. We have a story about why we're the only Western industrial country without universal health care, about why Americans consume so much sugar, about capitalism, about democracy. We're really trying to change the way that Americans are thinking that this was just uh, a problem of the past that we've resolved and show that it isn't. What many people don't know, and I um, point this out in my essay, is that one of the reasons we even decide to become a nation in the first place is over the issue of slavery. And had we not had slavery, we might be Canada. Mm. Uh, that one of the reasons that the founders wanted to break off from Britain is they were afraid that Britain was going to begin regulating slavery and maybe even moving towards abolishment. And we were making so much money off of slavery that the founders wanted to be able to continue it. We're not taught that when we're taught about uh, our origin stories. And not knowing that then um, really does not allow us to grapple with the nation that we really are and not just the nation that we're taught in kind of American mythology. Peter Wood, that was a long clip, but I wanted to get a flavor for it. What's your response? Because she's talked about how facts are important. Right. She starts out uh, beautifully. She praises the pursuit of truth and how facts are important. And I couldn't agree more. Moreover, I, I'm on her side when it comes to let's not airbrush our history and treat only the good things. In fact, I don't know of any historians who treat only the good things. History is a matter of what happened and trying to figure out what happened and how it all fits together inevitably involves addressing things that are ugly and unhappy. So uh, all that history belongs there. But then she turns, she pivots to this uh, utterly false idea that the American Revolution was fought in order to protect slavery against the threat that the British were going to abolish it. She says that in her lead essay in the 1619 Project. And it's the very first thing in that project that really caught my attention and made me say, oh my goodness, what kind of person is writing this? This is not true. Well, I wasn't the only one who responded that way. Almost all the major American historians, that is, historians of America, whether they are in this country or England or New Zealand or other places, immediately responded to that saying, Nicole Hannah-Jones, you're wrong about that. There is absolutely no evidence that that was a factor in the American Revolution. Well, how do we know that? Well, we do have this handy document called the Declaration of Independence, which lays out about 30 different reasons why the colonists thought it necessary to separate uh, the 13 colonies from the King of England and protecting slavery was not mentioned. 
or maybe they forgot to put it there and it's to be found someplace else. Historians have now gone back and searched every single colonial newspaper of that period. None of them mentions this idea. We have diaries and private letters by Americans during that time. People spoke their minds, not only then, but later on, recollecting why they acted the way they did. Nowhere is there one tiny piece of evidence that supports what Nicole Hannah-Jones just said. So here she is praising truth in the pursuit of facts, and then she's just making stuff up. Making stuff up is not history. It's, it's called fiction, and that's what she's providing. And in a moment, we'll get to why it's such a bad thing that they are not providing actual facts. But let's talk about the extent of this factual sloppiness, as you write about in the book, Peter Wood. Again, we're talking with Peter W. Wood. He is author of the book 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project and also president of the National Association of Scholars here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. All right, Peter, so in terms of the factual sloppiness component, it's not just about that year 1619 and the basic premises of the country from 1776, but they talk about these ideas of how racism is even a component of why we don't have universal health care. The development of, of music in the United States is something that is a result of racism, and even now in this modern day and age, Age, and the list goes on. Talk to us a little bit more about the extent to which there is this factual sloppiness in a publication that has been put out by the New York Times and also, as we'll emphasize in a moment, in schools across the country. Well, the, the main part of the 1619 Project was 10 fairly long essays by various people. Two of them are historians, the rest are journalists or, or people in other walks of life. Um, most of them tell a tale. Uh, the tales are sometimes interesting. Traffic patterns are the result of racism. How do you get there? There's a little mystery to be figured out. The, the answer is the interstate highway system was built to bypass the inner cities and uh, strangle black communities away from the white suburbs. And therefore, that's why we have traffic jams, all those white people trying to get into the cities from which the roads uh, lead them elsewhere. Um, the, the idea is to take stuff that exists today and that progressives or liberals are unhappy about and then try to weave a story that somehow connects it back to slavery. Um, some of the stories are more believable than others. Uh, I'm perfectly ready to accept that modern American music draws on black musical oh, traditions. Absolutely. Well, I'm delighted that that's the case. Mm -hmm. And I, I hardly see it as an act of oppression that Americans have come to love the con contributions to popular music that uh, our black ancestors have provided. Wonderful stuff, great it happened. That's maybe the best essay in the whole collection. But there's other ideas that are just kind of bizarre. Uh, one lengthy essay argues that American capitalism is uh, called low road capitalism in the essay. It means that we exploit our workers to the maximum. We try to drive every bit of profit we can out of people, then throw them away. And that that idea, according to the author of that essay, uh, goes back to plantation slavery, where American capitalism was invented, so it's said. Uh, this essay is full of things that are kind of histor historical howlers. There's a claim, for example, that uh, double-entry bookkeeping began on uh, slavery plantations, 
Uh, it was invented hundreds of years earlier and in wide use in Europe and in the North, but here it needs to be traced to slavery because anything that's constructive to a profit-making free economy somehow has to be delegitimized and the way to do that is to connect it to slavery. American prosperity, according to the 1619 Project, derives from the cotton slave economy before the Civil War. Uh, that idea was called uh, King Cotton by the apologists for slavery before the Civil War, and they believed that cotton was so important to the world's economy that if war were to break out, England and the rest of Europe would come to the southern states uh, uh, rescue and the South would prevail easily in the war. Well, King Cotton proved to be a very false idea when the cotton supply in the South became blockaded by northern ships. Uh, England turned to India and to Egypt to produce cotton and King Cotton turned out to be a, a hollow idea, except now it's being resurrected. The, uh, the 1619 Project needs to believe that the slavery economy was so prosperous because it needs to trace modern American prosperity to an illegitimate source. Sure. So th there are kernels of truth, like when you were talking about music, absolutely without question, the idea of call and response and the, the roots of Americana music that goes to blues and beyond. I'm a big blues fan. You saw that in the show open, Peter Wood. But when it comes to music, you absolutely have roots that come back to us, uh, that come to us from slavery. But at the same time, when you take historical facts that are accurate, and truths that are indeed true, and then use them in a way that also substantiates claims that are completely false, that's deeply troubling. And my question to you, Peter, is when we talk about the whole nature of this 1619 Project and the challenges on factual grounds that have been presented to its authors, how have they handled the criticisms, the critiques from your, you and from others on this issue? Well, I believe the expression is crickets. Uh, for most of the time since the report has come out, as critics have laid down their points and presented their evidence and argued that it's out, the New York Times has simply ignored us. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, invited to debate these matters on public stages, has declined or ignored such invitations. The New York Times, presented with petitions by many important historians declined to answer them, in most cases declined to even publish them. So we are left with uh, the sense that the New York Times just doesn't care that factual accuracy was violated in every which direction as this thing went forward. There is one small exception, or maybe two to this. About eight months after the uh, Times published this, its own fact checker, a historian named Leslie Harris, came forward on Politico and said, well, actually, before they published it, I told them that that claim about the American Revolution was false, but they published it anyway. So uh, at that point, the Times made its one correction. It went back into the report and changed it from the colonists rebelled because they wanted to protect slavery to some of the colonists rebelled because they wanted to protect slavery. Still not true, but it was a correction. Then in September of last year, President Trump speaking at the National Archives 
uh, criticized the 1619 project and said he was going to launch a 1776 commission instead. At that point, the Times went back to the 1619 digital version and started changing all sorts of things, uh, afraid that they were finally going to be called out in a way that was going to be uncomfortable to them. They didn't acknowledge making these changes. This was stealth editing. Uh, one of the critics, a man named Phil Magnus, however, compared what the digital version was then saying to the original version and started noticing all these changes. So we do find that the Times is a little bit susceptible to criticism. It took a long time to get there, and they're still not honest about it. Peter Wood, I want to read a quick passage from the final chapter of your book, The Future, because one of the ways in which they've gone about defending the so-called scholarship of the 1619 Project has been by saying, well, fundamentally it gets it right. You sort of present this sensibility in a paraphrased framing of it. Never mind the exact details. We know America was a rough place where European settlers mistreated the native population, ravaged the environment, enslaved blacks, and put in place institutionalized inequality and oppression that continues to this day. So basically what they're saying is our fundamental point, the goal of the 1619 Project, is enough to justify the factual inaccuracies. Here's my biggest problem with that. That is, we are now seeing the growth of the 1619 Project curricula in American schools. And you cannot, Peter, and you know this as a scholar, you cannot teach young people that facts really aren't that much of an important factor to your writings or your scholarship if you get some fundamental kernel of truth right. That is deeply troubling, especially that we're in the schools and this kind of so-called scholarship is being presented to them as curriculum. All right, we're going to get to the truth by means of lies. That doesn't uh, wash with very many people. Uh, the 1619 Project was launched from the beginning to be a curriculum. The last page of the original report is a, an announcement by the Pulitzer Center that it's being rolled out in the schools. They recruited thousands of teachers and then dozens of school districts to adopt it formally. Uh, they've been busy doing that ever since. About a month ago, they announced new fellowships, monetary rewards to teachers who agree to teach it and to recruit other teachers to teach it. So it is being taught in our nation's schools. And even if you don't think it's being taught in your own schools, your school board or your school administrators might not know because they've gone over the heads of the administrators directly to the teachers. Um, this is very troubling. What we're doing is presenting to young people who are in no position to dispute this. They, you can't go to a, a student in primary school or even in high school and say, oh, here's what happened and expect that they're going to be able to cite other sources of authority or archival documents to say, no, it's not. Uh, students tend to take at face value what those authorities in their lives, sure. teachers, tell them is true. So we are uh, basically brainwashing a generation to hate our country. Hate our country, why? Because unabashedly for hundreds of years, it created misery for black people and the white people profited on that. White supremacy reigned. Now. To the extent that there are elements of truth in that, I want those to be told. Because yes. if you tell this story as a, a fable that's made up of uh, pieces 
that are blatantly not true. I don't want that told. Exactly. You, you and I are, are in absolute agreement that, first of all, slavery needs to be taught in schools. It is a horrid sin upon this country from the past. And we need people to be fully knowledgeable of what has happened in this country. But you have to make sure that you're actually, and I think this gets to your fundamental point, you have to make sure that you are actually teaching accurate and truthful information here. What the New York Times is teaching it is a kind of interpretation, but it's an interpretation that licenses itself to lie, that uh, it presents things that we just know are not true, and it, you know, those are all in the same direction of exaggerating how bad things were, how bad they were at the beginning, how bad they were all along, and how the badness of slavery has uh, poisoned American life ever since. Well, the legacy of slavery is not something that we're happy about for sure, but that it poisoned life ever since, I don't know. You can go back to the generation that uh, gained its freedom from slavery and the generation raised after that, and you will find that black Americans, uh, although they suffered mightily under Jim Crow laws and stuff like that, they also learned to thrive. Mm. And uh, they became a part of America that no one would say is indispensable. They have made their contributions as free people in our country, and that is to be prized. That's a story that needs to be told as well. Not, and that gets suppressed here. What we're finding in the 1619 Project is not only things that didn't happen that are presented as having happened, but major things that did happen that aren't being told. The 1619 Project is a general erasure of the gains that blacks made uh, from Frederick Douglass on. This is a story that omits the achievements of many millions of black Americans who did make an important mark in this country. Yeah, it creates a sense of victimhood that is the root of this entire project instead of actually educating people on the brutality of slavery and yes, the legacy of slavery and of Jim Crow, but going off in these other directions that are making purely political points like the idea that universal health care not being a thing in the United States of America is simply some sort of a result of the legacy of slavery and racism. And in reading that article that was presented on that topic, I was just absolutely stunned by the complete lack of a factual basis in real scholarship other than telling one particular story about uh, the first government program that was designed to help freedmen back in the late 1800s. Well, you know, you can make a story out of anything if you're licensed to ignore the facts and you don't need real evidence to support it. Um, and, and using anecdotes as a way to get to where you want to go is a form of propaganda. It's not really history telling. Um, the New York Times presented this initial document as history. That was its word. Uh, it has now backed off from that. It now calls it narrative. Now, narrative, what, what that tells me is that we're in the realm of simply making stuff up. And unfortunately, that is not something that a newspaper should be able to do with impunity. 
As we wrap up here again, I'm talking with Peter W. Wood, author of this book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, which does include a lot of actual factual sources cited and, of course, also delves deeply into the scholarship or lack thereof, as well as the actual scholarship that is available. Uh, well, just a couple minutes left with you, and I'm curious as to what you think we can and should be doing in order to combat this. I mean, obviously, you discussed how parents should become more aware of what's going on in their local school districts with their kids and so forth as far as the material that's being taught. But what can we do, big picture, in terms of action items? I know in your book, for example, you talk about Robert Woodson, the civil rights activist, and his approach to this, for example. Right. Uh, Woodson is running a project called 1776 Unites, which is trying to draw attention to the achievements of black entrepreneurs and other people who have advanced the cause of civil rights in this country over the last century or so. And uh, I think that's a valuable contribution. When it comes to parents, you know, the parents of today's school children are themselves people who've gone through our nation's schools and I, I fear don't really know the history of our country very well. So one of the very first steps here is just to educate yourself uh, go out and read some actual histories of the country and figure out what the facts are. Um, that's going to be a more powerful corrective to what your kids are getting in school than simply telling them, oh, don't believe that stuff. You've got to be able to talk in a fairly fluent way as to what the actual history of the country is. So self-education goes a long way. Uh, I think the other piece of this is to realize that our schools really are uh, governed at the state and local level, not at the federal level. So while well, President Biden seems to be tilting towards uh, treating the 17 or the uh, 1619 project as a good thing, we really need to focus on making sure that our states, our school districts, and our individual schools and teachers keep their, their uh, eye on the ball here. And that is we have a real story to tell of American history it includes everything, warts and all, but we cannot let this be turned into a creed of I hate America because we are white supremacists from the beginning and blacks have been nothing but passive victims of this scourge. Which leads me to one fundamental question as well. Uh, when we talk about this whole idea of how it's being taught in schools right now in terms of the 1619 Project, Peter Wood how should we be teaching it? How should it be presented in the classroom in terms of slavery and the different aspects of American life that descend from that and what, what the facts really are? What do you think we should be covering? How should we approach it? Well, slavery has to be understood, first of all, as a nearly universal institution. It was in all of Europe and all the rest of the world uh, at the very beginning of this country. And the slave trade across the Atlantic was run by the Spanish and Portuguese for a full hundred years before the British settlement of North America began. The impression given in the 1619 Project, and I fear many students now believe this, is that slavery was something that Americans embedded. It's not. It's something that we inherited from the larger world. And as it happened, slavery in what became the United States was a tiny, tiny part of the slavery that existed in Latin America, Central America, and the Caribbean. A very small minority of slaves were brought here. 
Uh, so it's important that that context be understood. It's also important to understand that the drive to free slaves, to end slavery altogether, began here. This was uh, the nation which, uh, even before the revolution, had begun to formulate the ideas that slavery was a gross violation of human rights. It was religious groups in the North, Quakers, for example, who began the drive for uh, the end of slavery, for abolition. It was our constitutional founders, many of whom were indeed slave owners, who had the foresight to realize that the institution could not be sustained. That's a history that needs to be understood. Slavery was a terrible sin, but America was the nation that started the path to getting rid of it, and we fought a horrendous civil war to bring it to an end, with 600,000 Americans dying to eliminate this institution. That was not nothing. Within less than 100 years of existence, the United States of America had eradicated slavery, and nations across the globe at that time cannot claim that within 100 years they eradicated such a horrid and sinful institution. One thing that I do want to ask you about, Peter Wood, is the idea that the United States in the Declaration of Independence in 1776 and also the U.S. Constitution was presenting a false idea of individual liberty and human rights. My contention is absolutely not. The eternal truths that were included in the Declaration were true then and they are true now. The United States was just falling woefully short of fully realizing the truths contained in that document about our inalienable rights and about our freedoms guaranteed under the Constitution once we get to 1789 and its implementation. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones starts out by saying that our ideals were false when they were written. Yes. Um, that, that is false. The ideals are not false. The realization of those ideals fell short, but we've been striving ever since and to this day to better realize those ideals. Nature of ideals, they don't even need to be set forth as ideals if they just describe what exists. What they present is what we hope we can become if we strive to become better than we are or we were. So uh, those ideals that are articulated in our Declaration and in the Constitution, I think, are val valid and powerful and inspiring. And it's why so many millions of people around the world want to come here to this day. And finally, before we let you go, Peter Wood, just what's coming to mind uh, as we're having this conversation are a couple of things. Uh, number one, the United States is unique because we were founded upon core principles about individual rights and liberty. Again, we were falling woefully short in many respects, particularly with the institution of slavery, but at least those ideals were there, and that's unique and exceptional for the United States because then we had a goal to aim for, to actually fulfill the vision of the founders and what they laid forward as far as the basic principles and values of this country. But also for a number of years, I ran an educational nonprofit. It was called the Liberty Day Institute that helped teach fifth graders about the U.S. Constitution 
an American government. We were in public schools. We provided constitution booklets and teaching resources, as well as volunteer speakers in the classroom. And one thing that I think is so important to keep in mind is that educators are going into K through 12 education without necessarily having much of a background themselves in American history and American governance. And then the school system doesn't focus on the social studies, as it's called, or civics or American history nearly enough and provide nearly sufficient resources. And so when something like the New York Times comes out and says, hey, we've got something for you and we are credible because we are the paper of record for this entire country, then it's no wonder that teachers may jump at the opportunity, which suggests that maybe providing alternative curricula that is rooted in facts may be an important way for us to go as well, Peter. Well, for sure, we need a better way to teach civics in this country. And it's a very disputed issue. Uh, back in uh, 2011, President Obama uh, commissioned a report titled um, The uh, Crucible Moment, which was a call for a new civics. Uh, the idea then being that the civics would be about multiculturalism and becoming a citizen of the world and about the sustainability movement, but nothing about traditional civics. That debate initiated then continues to this day. There's something called action civics, which is very much alive with the 1619 project uh, and is calling for essentially turning children into junior league political activists. But this is in dispute with people like me who think that what we need is a strong uh, revival of the kind of civics that you were just describing. Uh, children need to know enough of the history of the country to understand what it means to be a self-governing republic and what it takes to be able to govern ourselves wisely. That's in danger of slipping away, and it's something we need to fight hard to get back. I think that is very well put and a great point to end on. Again, the book is 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. It is a fascinating and informative read. The author, our guest today here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, Peter W. Wood. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Best of luck with the book, and we really appreciate your insights. And thank you. Once again, Peter W. Wood joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Truly a very interesting and informative read indeed in his book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. I highly recommend it because it really is, you can tell why he is president of the National Association of Scholars. Be sure to check out the book. But one of the things that's so striking to me is you really get the sense of the, what he calls in the book, factual sloppiness of the New York Times. The newspaper of record using its reputation to get curricula into the schools that are not based in fact. That have some truths and some facts that are interspersed in there, but there is so much falsity. In the 1619 Project, it is genuinely stunning. Now, again, as we talked about with Peter, you absolutely need to teach slavery and what horror it really was. You need to teach about how the United States fell short of its principles for far too many years. For far too long, the majority of our history 
We have fallen short of our principles, but they weren't false. They were true. They were enshrined in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And don't just take it from me. Let's take it from the great Frederick Douglass. In 1852, we talked about this a lot last summer, he gave a speech entitled, From What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And he talked about the Declaration of Independence being, and remember, this is a freed slave and an abolitionist. And he wasn't too removed from slavery. The Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. So indeed, I regard it. The principles contained in that instrument are saving principles, not false principles. Notice he's not saying false principles. They are saving principles. Stand by those principles. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, and at whatever cost. Again, what Frederick Douglass is essentially saying in that passage, what Frederick Douglass is essentially saying is, yes, these are great principles in the Declaration, but you know what? You're not living up to them, America. And that's why he doesn't feel like he's part of the United States at this time in 1852, and understandably so. He vehemently believed in the saving principles of the United States of America and the Declaration of Independence. And also he defended the founders of this country. And then he goes on to talk about the Constitution of the United States. He says that the Constitution, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble. Consider its purposes. Is slavery among them? Is it at the gateway? Or is it in the temple? It is neither. And this is in categorically saying that the Constitution is in no way pro-slavery. He says, There is no matter in respect to which the people of the North have allowed themselves to be ruinously imposed upon as that of the pro-slavery character of the Constitution. In that instrument, I hold that there is neither warrant license, nor sanction of the hateful thing. And again, he says, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. And he says, points out why neither slavery, slaveholding, nor slave can be found anywhere in it. This is Frederick Douglass, who wrote his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. He lived under the brutality of slavery. He was born into it. And yet even at that time in 1852, speaking to a gathering of abolitionists, he specifically talks about how the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are antithetical to slavery. What I do not understand is how something like the 1619 Project doesn't tout the views of Frederick Douglass, abolitionist, and say, look, throughout the United States history, throughout the history of our country, this country, this nation, 
fell short of its principles. It treated human beings like chattel. It abused them. It denied them the fundamental rights that were promised in the founding of this country. That is accurate. That is true. That is based in fact. But it also acknowledges that the principles enshrined in these documents are not as Nicole Hannah-Jones puts it, false principles. They are true principles. They are, again, in the words of Frederick Douglass, abolitionist and former American slave, liberated slave, saving principles. There is a right way to teach this that presents the sin and presents the horror of slavery and of Jim Crow but not in the way that 1619 does it. The way to do it is through actual, factual instruction and a discussion about the values and principles upon which we were based and how the United States has constantly worked hard to improve and to realize those principles, even again, as Peter Wood mentioned, fighting a civil war over it. That is true, and that is a fuller picture. It is the accurate picture, and it is the one we need to be teaching in schools across the country today. That is it for us today here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Once again, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner, and it is such a pleasure and a privilege indeed to be with you today as it has been every day that we have had the opportunity to do an episode. My thanks to Peter Wood for joining us here on the show, to Matt Stein Kruger for being a producer today, and of course to you for watching, listening, subscribing, and sharing all of our content. I'm so grateful for it. And as always, may God bless America. Talking politics, pray for generations, oh, what makes I got Jimmy and the Crossroads, making sense out of nothing, y'all say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boom.